Well, good morning, church. This is Basil McLaren, and I'm so grateful to be with you and share with you this morning on resurrection, a living hope for a dying world. And I know it's still Easter season. Uh, Easter was last weekend, and we had a kind of cool message from all four pastors. And But I want to continue this theme of, of Easter and resurrection. And so let me begin by telling you why the resurrection means so much to me personally. And the resurrection is meaningful to me, especially in, in times like this, because we need something that speaks to the depths of our condition and to the severity of our predicament. And because if all we have are myths and platitudes and other people's ideas, as good as they may be, it's not enough. I want to know the truth. The difference the resurrection makes is that it can be the immovable anchor our world and our hearts need. As Abdul Murray said, that we need a salvation that comes from outside of us to save us from us. If we don't have that, then we are simply left to our own devices. And I'm so excited to share with you uh, this morning, because the last while I've done this deep dive into the historical evidence for and the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus. And what I've learned has served to deepen my faith so much. And really, this is the natural occurrence of things. Generally speaking, our confidence or our belief in something is proportional to the evidence. So if you have more evidence, you have more trust. Just like Peter or Thomas or any of the disciples, when they first heard of Jesus missing from the tomb and proclaimed alive, they couldn't believe it either. But upon further investigation and seeing the evidence of Jesus and eating with him and hanging out with him, their trust in the resurrection took shape. It's just like this one Jewish writer, actually, a number of years ago, wrote this book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. And he uh, didn't believe the resurrection from his Jewish perspective. He uh, just thought Jesus was, you know, another one of those crazy uh, preachers, itinerant preachers at that time. Um, but after doing a ton of research and writing a whole book on it, this is what he says. Concerning the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, I was for decades a denier. I am no longer a denier since the following deliberation has caused me to think this through anew. And he goes on to talk about how these peasants and shepherds, you know, and fishermen, they were, you know, they were nothing and they uh, were weak. And, and uh, this is what he says, if the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. And then he, he concludes by saying, look, if you're after a logical analysis or a rational explanation, the resurrection of Jesus is a viable option and is a good one. And uh, it helps explain the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. That's uh, from the Jewish perspective by Pinchas Lapid. And this is because faith is predicated on reason. Faith is the response to seeing some evidence. So the more evidence you have, 
the stronger your trust should be. Christianity knows nothing of blind faith. Normally, people have a reason why they believe something. They might not be good reasons, but you normally have a reason. So let's think about this for a second with a simple example that maybe we can relate to. If you believe in something, say Afghanistan is a real place, but then I challenged your belief and I said, well, how do you know it's real? Have you been there? And you will most likely say no. And then I'll ask, well, how do you know it's a real place? And you might give me some reasons why you think it's real. You've seen a map or pictures and you don't know with certainty, but you have some probability of knowledge that Afghanistan is real. But what if I gave you even more evidence? So you see, I've been to Afghanistan, and so I can tell you what it's like. I can show you my pictures, which might corroborate with other pictures you've seen. And I can tell you a lot of details about the cities, and I've been there twice, in fact. And so now after you research a whole bunch more evidence, would your belief in Afghanistan being a real place increase or decrease? Well, naturally, you become more confident after seeing more evidence. And the same is true of your faith. And after this research I've done on Jesus' resurrection, lately my faith has been bolstered. And what a wonderful thing it is to have your faith grow. And that's my hope for us this morning, that your faith would grow deeper and deeper roots. But it's also important to speak to why the resurrection of Jesus is important. We might practically ask in such days as we're living in now, where can I find hope for today and hope for tomorrow and hope that I'll be okay and hope that my family will be okay and hope that all my investments, monetarily or otherwise, will not be lost. It might be the case that the little hope we do have is taking a beating, that in fact our hope cannot bear the weight of today's burdens our little cliches and poetic musings and memes may provide a brief break from the onslaught of bad news as we try to hold on to a sentimental hope. I don't think it can take this foreboding moment of unknowns and unease that we currently face. Right now, it feels like our fears are crushing our hopes. And our hopes need careful treading lest they be dashed in pieces. And I want to say in the midst of what feels like a whirlwind, our hope needs a substantial and unbreakable anchor to hold the deep down so as not to be overwhelmed by a tsunami of sorrow. And I submit to you that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is just the objective anchor for such trying times of which we are in need now. Let me explain with some evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But before I do, if you're not a Christian or just think that the idea of a physical bodily resurrection from the dead is too extraordinary to believe, I want to address that quickly. And so let me just use an example here to illuminate why I think the resurrection is a viable option. And um, Some skeptics might, might see a parallel here in how the resurrection is unbelievable or incredible and also how the beginning of the universe it would be too extraordinary to believe God made it. And so I want to just touch on the universe for a second. Um, because when it comes to the universe, there are really only three options about its beginning uh, that are relevant to the academic literature. Number one is God made it. Number two is the universe came from nothing. And number three is the universe is eternal. 
As regards the first option, God made it, that maybe that's just too incredible for you to believe. It's like believing a miracle and you don't believe in miracles. So that's off the table. But when it comes to option two, the universe came from nothing. Uh, just let me quote from a number of leading thinkers. This is uh, Quentin Smith, who has published hundreds of articles in academic journals. He's a famous atheist and philosopher. And this is what he says. The fact of the matter is that the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. We should acknowledge our foundation in nothingness. Another leading thinker, one of the greatest mathematicians of our age was Stephen Hawking, recently passed away. And in his last book, The Grand Design, he wrote these words. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And finally, the third option is the universe is eternal and it goes um, into the past forever and is necessary and therefore doesn't need an explanation. Uh, but this option goes against all current science, at least since Hubble's law in the late 1920s. Um, he discovered that the universe is expanding and thus had a, a beginning point. And if you want to see what he looks like, you can Wikipedia him. In the picture on Wikipedia, Edwin Hubble looks like a boss with his pipe in the Wikipedia picture, and it's awesome. But anyway, that option, it would also be incredible to believe. So what I want us to notice is that all three of these options, whether God made it, the universe came from nothing, or the third option, the universe is eternal, they're all extraordinary options. It would take something like a miracle for any of these to occur. And so as my friend Vince Vitale says, all the options are miraculous. It's not really about believing something extraordinary. It's about choosing which extraordinary option makes the most sense, has the most explanatory power, and for which there's more evidence. And when it comes to these questions, Christianity is not the intellectual inferior. Uh, so please come to the topic with an open mind about the resurrection this Easter season. And there are many lines of evidence that we could take. Um, but for the sake of time, I want to touch on one bit of evidence in particular. And that is an extremely early creed that Christians recited. And it's found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. If you want to quickly grab a Bible, you can go ahead. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7. This is what it says. For what I received... Paradoka is the Greek word. I passed on. Paralabon is the Greek word. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one untimely born. Now, what I want us to notice about this creed is those two words I mentioned at the beginning, those Greek words, paradoka and perlaban, are words used by rabbis when passing on official teaching. And we can tell this is a creed because it's set up in a little different way. It's got a, a, its own cadence, and there's a very strict structure to the sentences. And so Paul is saying he's received this in a very formal and official way. And so scholars ask, well, when did Paul receive this? 
And now I'm going to quote to you a couple of um, New Testament scholars, but they're not Christians. I'm not quoting to you any uh, particularly Christian evidence at all. All of these scholars, uh, I've got a number of them, but for time's sake, I'll only quote two. They're ardent atheists. The first one is from Gerd Ludman, who is an atheistic professor of New Testament at Gottingham, Gottingen University in Germany. And the elements, he says, in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, falls into the time between 30 and 33 CE, that is common era or AD Anno Domini. A second quote by John Dominic Crossan, who is also a renowned atheist New Testament scholar. He wrote this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus in the early 50s CE, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that I handed on to you as a first importance, which I in turn received. John Dominic Crossan says, the most likely source and time for his reception of that tradition would have been Jerusalem in the early 30s, when according to Galatians 1.8, Paul went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and stayed with him 15 days. And one scholar goes so far as to say that this creed was recited within a few months of Jesus' death. But my point is, even the hard-nosed skeptics agree to the early nature of these beliefs among Christians. And many skeptics have nodded in the direction of a legend as a way to explain the data. But after studying the development of legends, we've come to a consensus that legends take at least two generations to develop. And here we're talking about two years. And so it's with confidence we can say it's beyond a historical doubt that Jesus of Nazareth died by a Roman crucifix, that the tomb was found empty, that skeptics like Paul converted, that hundreds of people saw Jesus post-resurrection. And the post-resurrection experiences are sometimes explained by hallucination or grief visions. But this cannot account for the number of people that saw Jesus post-resurrection as these types of hallucinations or grief visions occur in only a very few people who are very close to the individual and they only uh, occur in the subject, subject's experiences in their own mind, not to crowds of hundreds of people at once. And uh, so on this theory, there's a lot of holes as well. How would skeptics convert like Paul? Or how would new rituals for worship begin like the re-ritualized Passover meal of communion? And how would gathering on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, instead of Shabbat or Sabbath happen? Or how would one explain the explosion of Christianity across the world in a few hundred years beginning at this point? These are massive changes that cry out for legitimate explanation that arose in such a strong and insular culture as ancient Judaism. Jews would not so quickly abandon their faith and their uh, Shema, God is one, mentality without a radical faith experience such as the resurrection. All the alternatives that are presented are simply more miraculous than the face value historical reporting of Jesus' disciples of what they would never have believed but came to hold so strongly. In fact, it's interesting to note that there's not a single alternative theory for the evidence for Jesus' resurrection that is well defended in academic literature. Now, 
here's the rub for us that if the resurrection did not happen, Christians are completely fumbling, pitiable people because the entire Christian story and hope is based on, founded on, predicated on, and grounded in the historical, researchable, falsifiable, and verifiable claim that God rose Jesus from the dead to an incorruptible body. Because not only would we believe a lie, but neither would we have a strong, substantial, and existential hope for today. On the other hand, if the resurrection is true, that God rose Jesus from the dead, then Christians have an unparalleled living hope. And so does all of creation. A hope that can literally stare death in the face, accept it for what it is, but know that it does not have the last word. When God raised Jesus from the dead, in effect, he did his first act of recreation through his word and said, let there be life forever in me. And so now as we give our lives to Jesus, he gives his life to us. This is what 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again. Your new life did not come from your earthly parents because the life they gave you will end in death. But this new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. So there is this great and living hope in Christianity. The question remains though, what do we do about suffering? Suffering is still here. And you see, suffering is hurt that can never be fixed here and now. The immediate solution, therefore, is simply to empathize with someone in pain, which is the ability to put yourself in their shoes and to come alongside them. And what is so comforting about the God of the Bible is that Jesus speaks directly to both of the issues of long-term cure and immediate solution to suffering. Now, there's still a mystery as to why suffering and death are here. And every worldview and every person asks this question. But the question boils down to one of trust. If there's this God, how can I trust him with my world of pain? And as it regards Jesus' short-term solution, we can look to the cross the solution that reverberates in my heart is this. What was God doing hanging up there on a human torture instrument? If that was God on that crucifix, the most humiliating and painful way the world has devised to die, the one thing we cannot conclude is that God is distant and callous and impervious to our pain. In all our pain, I want to encourage you that in the hope we have, your past and your pain do not define you. Yes, it shapes you, but its meaning can be reshaped by the shape of the cross. You can't alter the past, but when you take your history to the altar of God, he can change the meaning of those events for you because he's the one who died and inverted death's meaning so that now death is the beginning of a new life. One of the sad and painful moments uh, that Cheryl and I have experienced together over the last seven years of marriage was a miscarriage. 
and knowing God's living hope for us in that moment. It didn't erase the pain or the loss of that child. In fact, we named the child, the unborn child, Charis Grace, as a sign of double grace. Charis means grace. We, we, as a sign of double grace be, that we receive precisely because even in the midst of that hardship, God's hope in Jesus anchored us. And it allowed the seeds of sorrow to not be a dead end, but to sprout into graces of intimacy together, support, and longing for more of God. So through the pain, oh, excuse me, though the pain is there, it becomes the instrument through which God uses goodness to come. Jesus doesn't only speak, though, to the short-term solution of being with us in our pain, empathizing with us and, and using our pain to bring goodness. He also offers a long-term cure. As C.S. Lewis put it in the famous uh, Chronicles of Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is, is saying this near the end. He says, when an innocent victim dies on behalf of someone else, Aslan speaking of himself, dying on behalf of Edmund, who uh, was one of the siblings uh, who trusted the witch and betrayed his his other siblings. And Aslan says, there is a deeper magic still than the witch's magic. And this is it, that the table would crack and death itself would start to work backward. This is a promise that we can bank on because Jesus rose from the dead. Our lives don't end at death, but instead we go through death. And like the Pevensey children in the Chronicles of Narnia, we go through the door of the wardrobe and enter a whole new world. If Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death, we then have an objective historical grounding for substantial and living hope, even in the midst of a dying world. This doesn't mean that the dying world isn't real, or even that it doesn't kill us. Rather, living hope gives one the ability to stare hardship and pain, crying and wailing, sorrow and shame, despair and doubt in the face, and continue to abide in the prospect of a far greater future. Just as the criminal on the cross next to Jesus said to him, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. The criminal was not forfeited as punishment for wrongdoing. He wasn't asking to be released from torture, nor to be exempted from death. Rather, he was admitting to something more powerful yet. He was saying all his hardship and death is real, but it pales in comparison to living with Jesus in his kingdom. How could this criminal cast his hope on Jesus beside him, who is also dying on a cross? Two men dying on a cross, yet one hopes in the other because he trusted that living hope is stronger than the grave that with all things, God is impossible. With all things, sorry, with God, all things are possible. Now, the root word for religion comes from the Latin for tie or link. So may I ask, frankly, to what is your hope tied? Where does the tether for your trust and hope lead? What, what do you really trust in? Is it your job? Was it some kind of security? 
Was it a, a person, a relationship you had? Was it or have, or, or was it your kids maybe, or, or how people view you or, or your good works? Maybe it's going to church or it's your health or something else. But is it tied to something fleeting and transient or is it tied to the cross and the resurrection? Because this living hope, it's what we need for such a rocky time. Is what you are trusting in tough enough to withstand the heavy storms ahead? Jesus is tough enough. He's been to hell and back for you and for me. And though the storm rage on the outside, and even as death comes knocking, our hearts will not fear. Because as Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who trust in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. Did you hear what Jesus said? Those who trust in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. Only a living hope reaches beyond death. And Jesus hung upon a tree, lifelessly, only to offer us this incredible exchange. He says, Basil, all of you for all of me. He says, insert your name there, Jeff, all of you for all of me. Mark, all of you for all of me. Matt and Larissa and Tanya and Melanie and Rob and Carrie and Justin and I don't know everyone's names, but insert your name there. He says, all of you for all of me. Why don't you lay down what you think is so great? Lay down your restless heart. Lay down your incessant search for more that you think will satisfy but never fully does. Lay it all down and pick up my life, says Jesus. And you can now say with the Apostle Paul, it's no longer I that live but Christ who lives in me. And we have this privilege of walking around with this divine identity. You now share in Christ's sufferings and you also share in his glory, in his divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. Your living hope is anchored to the living one. But remember this, the substantial hope of the believer and the meaning of the resurrection, it's only true because it's anchored in objective historical reality. If you don't know Jesus or even if you do but you want to know him deeper, I want to invite you to take a deeper look at Jesus today and his resurrection and what it means for you. It's okay to doubt, like that famous apostle Thomas who doubted Jesus' resurrection. Everyone questions. It's, it's good, in fact. And Jesus invites our questions. And even the word skeptic, it means to stand at a distance and look on. But when it comes to a relational offer, we don't just stand far off forever. We either reject that offer or we accept it. Like when I proposed to Cheryl, for example, I extended this offer of a ring and some girls have made that guy wait a long time. And in a sense, it's good that there's a suspense and serious thought for that occasion, but he's not gonna kneel forever. And God has essentially proposed to humanity by offering his life to us as a man offers his life to this woman. So now we can take the time to think it over. But there also comes a time to commit. 
You know, somebody said, some truths only become understandable when we go to meet them, as in love, for example. I think that's true. It's, a, it's the same with you know, food. I could describe it to you and give you this wonderful recipe, but it only really becomes understandable when you taste it. And there's this amazing verse in, in the Psalms in the Bible. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in a sense, I've kind of been describing to you the goodness and the hope of the living God. And as if it were like a recipe. But I want you to actually taste it. And if, if you take a bite, that's when you're going to taste it. I don't want to just give you the recipe for living hope. I want you to know it. You have to appropriate it for yourself. You have to take that step of commitment. And if you're ready to take that step of tasting God's goodness for yourself, then maybe just come and say these words with me. God, you have my heart. Please take it all, the brokenness, the ugliness, the goodness, everything that's there, and please give me your heart. I want to be in your family. And if you've made this commitment to get to know God, or even just to get to know him deeper, then maybe tell another Christian, especially in these times. Phone them up, message them, let them know, hey, I want to know God deeper. Can you help me? Let's, let's walk on this journey together. And so, Father, I, I thank you so much for your word, that it is true, that it's not returned void, um, that it is life and life forevermore. Uh, I thank you that you promised you said those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. And Lord, we come to you hungry. And you promised those uh, who draw near to me, I will draw near to them. And we come drawing near to you. Arms open wide, hearts open wide. We say, fill us up, Lord, with your living water, with your living hope, because you are the living one. And we pray this blessing and your goodness over uh, this church body. Thank you for your death, your resurrection, that you've given all of yourself for all of us. Help us to receive what you've given us. Help us to give back ourselves to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.